Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Book Network podcast. I'm Deidre Tyler, host. Today, we'll be talking with Sarah Marcus, author of Political Disappointment, A Cultural History from Reconstruction to the AIDS Crisis. How are you doing today? I'm doing quite well, thanks. How are you doing? Great. I wonder if you could start by telling us something about yourself and how you got started on this project. Something about myself. Well, this is a this book is my first academic book, but it is not it is not my first book. Something about myself that would be useful to your listeners, I suppose, is that I'm an assistant professor of English at the University of Notre Dame, where I also teach in the gender studies program and am affiliated with the Initiative on Race and Resilience. I've been at Notre Dame for three years, and um, but prior even to my going into the academy and getting a PhD, and this book was part of my, um, my doctoral dissertation, prior to any of that, I wrote about music and books in the popular press, and I um, was, I mean, I still am a musician, but I played in um, a many bands and wrote criticism of popular music and of books about, um, well, a lot, but a lot of stuff, but primarily books about feminism and about music and the combination between those two. And my first book, which came out in the year 2010, is a history of a punk rock feminist movement of young women in the 1990s known as Riot Girl. That book is called Girls to the Front, the True Story of the Riot Girl Revolution. And, um, and following the publication of that book was when I started to hatch up this new idea of a book that was going to cover more of the 20th century. Um, my idea was that it would cover much of it, although the, the timescale expanded as I worked on it. But I was really interested in these literary figures who all kind of whose careers all sort of overlapped in the middle of the century, all women whose literary work, pardon me one second, <clears throat> whose literary work was inextricable from a sense of their engagement with social movements of the time. Um, the three people who I was thinking about when I was applying to graduate school were Tilly Olson, who now shows up in the second chapter of the book, Grace Paley, who shows up in the intro um, quite a bit more briefly than I had originally expected, and Adrienne Rich, who is one of the figures in the fourth chapter. So these were all writers that I had had um, varying degrees of um, intense, uh, intense periods of reading and thinking about and thinking with, but I could tell the, the exact shape of the book remained elusive to me. And it wasn't until I got to graduate school and started doing this in the academic context that the idea that connected all of them, this idea of disappointment as a, as a recurrent experience of political life in the United States in the 20th century began to appear to me. And once that thematic was in place, it was very clear that my archive needed to expand dramatically. And one of the first things that happened was I realized that the book needed to start decades earlier than I was imagining and that it needed to start at the failure of reconstruction at the end of the 19th century. Um, and the, the, and 
that I needed to begin the project thinking with and learning from and writing alongside the Black thinkers who were at the turn of the 20th century trying to make sense of the fact that following a period in which that following a period that had looked quite hopeful for the transformation of the United States into a multiracial democracy, that change had not only been brought up short and cut off before it was complete, but it actually been rolled back and reversed in many, many ways. And in some cases, things um, were conditions for African-Americans in the U.S. in many ways were worse than they um, had been before the changes started happening. And the question that people like W.E. Du Bois and Charles Chestnut, who are the two main figures in my first chapter, were confronting is, well, what, do, what does this mean for history? What does this mean for the idea of progress? What does this mean? How, do, how are we to think about it? We living in you know, this, this idea in this land called America that has a sort of perfectibility and you know, at, a, at the very root of its mythology, so that was how the book got started. It was a it was a project that I had in mind prior to entering the academy that working in the academy helps me to understand exactly what the contours of it were and what I was trying to do with it. And then I'm very grateful to say that it hasn't been kept the the, the project has not remained sort of walled up in the academy, but that I've been able to to produce out of it a book for academic and non-academic readers and been able to engage in conversations um, far beyond English uh, departments or American studies departments, including with you. So thank you. Now, chapter one, you talk about the writers uh, after Reconstruction. What are some of the messages that they gave, especially about the color line? I have three main figures in the first chapter. I already mentioned W.E.B. Du Bois and Charles Chestnut, who, um, Chestnut, perhaps less well-known to some of your listeners, is considered to have been the first commercially successful African-American fiction writer. And um, his novel, The Marrow of Tradition, comes out in 1901 and does not not sell as well as his previous work, which which had been short stories that were working with and playing off of and slightly undermining the um, a, tr- uh, a regionalist and um, a regionalism trend in fiction that also overlapped in many ways with plantation nostalgia. So he was writing these sort of tales from these fictional tales from out of slavery that involved like fantastical or magic realism elements. And they had done very, very well. And then he publishes this novel, The Marrow of Tradition, which is a fictionalized um, retelling of a white supremacist coup d'etat that had taken place in Wilmington, North Carolina, and had overthrown the interracial fusion government and, um, killed an untold number of black citizens and expelled from the town a great number of the town's black inhabitants, especially those with any measure of economic or social power. Um, Chestnut had had lived in North Carolina for a period of time in his young adulthood, and he went back down to um, to interview people and research the um, the coup, which had at the time 
not been reported accurately in the national news media. And so the big question that Chestnut is exploring in the Marrow tradition is how can things stay bad or get bad again when there has been progress? And this is a question, and, and what are people to do in the wake, not in the wake, but in the face of such difficulties. He has, he, um, his main character in the book is a African-American doctor who has built a hospital for black patients in the town um, who faces setbacks and slights throughout the book and consistently maintains this dogged faith in progress and chooses not to protest when people, when he suffers indignities, he bears it all up bravely and says, I know things are getting better. It will just take time. And his foil in the book is a, um, a working man named Josh, Josh Green, um, who is avenging a family death at the hands of a white supremacist. And he has no patience for waiting for things to get better. To him, there, there will never be a better at following the loss that he has suffered. And so at the time, at the time when the characters try to debate among themselves what, what they should do to fight against the white supremacist violence that's going on around them, um, the doctor wants to, you know, use the proper channels and be very respectable about it. And and Josh just wants to go go down fighting, basically. And so these these are the these are the oppositions that are set up. And in fact, by the end of the book, it's actually the doctor's wife whose example becomes perhaps the most compelling one, because she she refuses to grant to her opponents. She refuses to forgive the people who have robbed her of things, including, um, by the end of the book, the life of her child. She, she will not forgive. She will not make peace. But she will be a more noble person and not seek revenge. And it is through that that, we, that um, I believe that Chestnut, anyway, intends for us to imagine a way um, a way to live that doesn't necessarily take for granted any sort of faith in improvement simply happening as a matter of course over time but that is that the the read I've just given can very much be contested and different readers of the marrow of tradition have discerned chestnut sympathies being in different places in different directions no. the, I was. Uh, do Do you want me to talk about the other two works in the chapter? Yes, please. Um, the The other major literary work in the chapter is W. E. Du Bois's W. E. B. Du Bois's nineteen o three collection, The Souls of Black Folk, and he also is very caught up in the question of progress and how do we know if things are getting better and how do we know if various expressions of hope in the past and the present are warranted are worth making. Um, 
And he leaves that question very much open at the end of the book. And what I found so interesting is that in the place of a definitive answer, I mean, he's a, he's a sociologist. He knows better than to, than to say in the middle of 1903 that he knows that things are, in fact, improving or that they aren't possibly improving. You know, the data is simply not conclusive enough. And instead of a conclusive answer, what he offers at the end of The Souls of Black Folk is a transcription of a song. Um, throughout the book, each chapter has been preceded by a doubled epigraph that consists of a poem from an Anglo-American poet, um, somebody who would have been understood as high reputation at the time, and then a, um, a few bars, a few measures of a uh, African-American spiritual song. Only half the staff, only the treble, um, only the treble clef, the treble staff of the song, um, and only the notes, no words. At the end of this, at the end of the book, when he's really confronting very deliberately, are things getting better? Can we, is hope warranted? He ends with a full transcription, treble and bass clef, with the words, an entire verse of, um, of the song, Let Us Cheer the Weary Traveler. And he lets that song have almost the last word in the whole book, as if he can do no more than the song does to, to present and to embody the practice of cheering somebody weary when you don't know which way, when you don't know where you'll actually be getting to as you go along the way. The third work that I discuss in the chapter, in the first chapter, is another um, set of musical transcriptions, this time by Ella Shepard, who was a founding member of the Fisk Jubilee Singers, a famous um, African-American singing group that came together at, um, at Fisk, now Fisk University, um, and embarked on singing tours to raise money so that Fisk could build a permanent building um, for academic activities. And they did, they toured, they raised the money, they built a, a red brick building called Jubilee Hall that is still there on the Fisk campus in Nashville. And Ella Shepard was one of the founding members of the group, a pianist, singer, and also a transcriber. And when the group, which had initially begun by singing classical works, began to add more and more um, spirituals to their repertoire, this music hadn't been written down yet. Um, by a, practically anybody. And so Ella Shepard and others took it upon themselves to write down the notes as different members of the group sang songs that they had heard sung. Um, and her um, one of the things I find very interesting about her transcriptions is that there are little places where she makes the writing of it visible in ways that wouldn't necessarily be audible when somebody was singing the work. So as one example, in the song that she transcribes called, Oh, I'm Going to Sing All Along the Way, there is a part in the song 
where the treble voices and the bass voices each have a fermata in what they're singing. A fermata being, um, if you can picture it, sort of a rainbow with a dot right in the middle of it that indicates to a musician that they should hold the note or the rest for an unspecified amount of time. Um, it is a way of taking a break in a way from the from the rhythm of the piece, but in a way that isn't, you know, scrambling the rhythm altogether. There's just a small um, a hitch or a pause. It's also known as a hold in music. Anyway, what I found very interesting was that there's a place where the treble voices have a fermata over an eighth note that they're singing, while the bass notes while the bass voices have a fermata over what they're singing, which is a quarter note, which occupies twice as long a time span as the eighth note. Um, the treble voices have the fermata over the eighth note, and then they're meant to go and sing an eighth note right after. So those two eighth notes together add up to the quarter that the bass note that the bass voices are holding. But it's an unusual way to write it. And in the book, I I see in this. Um, in this interesting transcription move that Ella Shepard makes, an acknowledgement of the importance of registering in some way the existence of like multiple temporalities or multiple potential ways of experiencing a given time, right? I'm talking, I've been, because I've been talking about Du Bois and about Chestnut and about these different ways of understanding is their progress, is their not progress? Are things moving forward? Are they moving backward? Are things paused? Um, the other piece of this is that there's this remarkable pause in the timeline in the marrow of tradition where characters look at their watch and they say it's 12 o'clock and then they go out and they're going to go out in the town and do something for half an hour and then they come back and have a big discussion and then they look at their watch and it's still 12 o'clock. And I read in all of these things this understanding that art and writing and especially writing that seeks to get some sort of sound or, um, or temporal experience or sonic experience into writing is an opportunity for registering those incommensurabilities. And that once you register those incommensurabilities, there's a possibility of, you know, I think I think of this thing that Ralph Ellison writes in Invisible Man, you slip into the breaks and look around. And just the idea that if there's a possibility of expanding on a pause or, um, or dwelling in some sort of incommensurability in a work, that that's actually a place where some sort of like imagination um, or possibility might be able to dwell. Now, in chapter two, you look at work songs. Uh, tell us about what you try to analyze there. Chapter two jumps forward from the reconstruction to the 1930s. And I take as my two figures in that chapter, Hudie Ledbetter, better known as Leadbelly, musician, guitarist, songwriter, um, singer, and Tilly Olson, a fiction writer who was active in the same period that as Ledbetter in the 30s, and then didn't write throughout the 40s and 50s until, um, or, or didn't publish anything anyway until 1960 when she came out with a celebrated short story collection called Tell Me a Riddle. In both of these cases, I discuss their work in relationship to this interesting shift that happens in the middle of the 1930s in which the, 
the sort of political analysis of the Communist Party, which was a real, in the 30s, a real force on the American left and a real resource for various people trying to understand what's going on politically and what might be coming up next. There's a shift in communist um, ideology from an idea that goes up until 1935 that world revolution is just around the corner. It's going to happen very soon. And the important thing is getting your ducks in a row and lining up the proper, like the proper alliances with the proper people and having the right line. And if you do all of this right and you invest the power in the working class um, and also not incidentally make sure that you have a movement that is not racist. The word for it then was white chauvinist. You have to clean your movement of any white chauvinism and, and make sure that you have a clear vision of a revolutionary change that's going to come about um, largely through the work of a working class that is explicitly multiracial. That's until 1935. It's called the third period doctrine. That ideology gets swept aside in 1935 as fascist forces are spreading across Europe. And instead of having the exact right line to, um, to make a world revolution happen imminently, the, um, the, the strategy shifts dramatically to we need to build coalition with as many different parties on the left as we possibly can to, um, to unite against the spread of fascism. So there's a, and this is called Popular Front. And many, many good things come about in this change. But one rather undersung um, con, <laughs> one undersung loss that comes about in that is that the people who understood their role in an imminent revolution and also had sort of for, um, shaped their own political desires around that expectation were a little bit left in the lurch. And so I analyzed that through Tilly Olson's um, short fiction, where she I, where she's reflecting back on this through various characters at a resolve of some decades, but also um, of Ledbetter's music and, as you say, precisely his work songs, and the way that right around this 1935 shift, when the figure of the worker is being um, erased from a lot of left-wing culture, things like the worker's music league turns into the people's music league and the workers this turns into the people's this and and the focus on like workers as such is deemed like not the right approach anymore um and it's right at this time that ledbetter starts to insert um audible sounds associated with manual labor into his performances um at least his recordings i don't have um we don't have recordings of live performances, but we know that in his recordings, it's right at this time that he begins to um, to go ha huh, in between lines of work songs to indicate the ways that people singing a work song on a work line might be going ha huh, to you know as as an exhalation as they're swinging an axe or or a pick or what have you, and so we hear this in um, in a sh different. Um, recordings he makes of the song Julianne Johnson, and then the, and then it becomes absolutely central to a song that becomes one of his most well-known songs, which is called Take This Hammer, which is both about sort of centering a, uh, a 
scene of manual labor, but also refusing it because Take This Hammer is a song about um, about leaving work, about walking off the job. Take this hammer, ha, t- carry it to the captain, ha, tell him I'm gone. You know, tell him I'm gone. Chapter three, you move ahead to the civil rights movement and the songs there. Which ones did you focus on? Tell us about that. Well, when I talk about the civil rights movement, I'm actually um, I'm talking about this moment in 1966 and this uh, march that takes place in Mississippi in which songs became sites of contestation between different factions of the civil rights movement who had different ideas about how to move forward. This is a moment in which um, the classical civil rights movement, as we are familiar with it, um, with the emphasis on nonviolence and um, and peaceful protest and civil disobedience, and also of group singing, you know, with people holding hands and singing, we shall overcome. This movement was now is now being contested by um, largely by younger activists who want to take a more conf- confrontational approach and want to, for example, not make a guarantee that they wouldn't defend themselves if they're attacked physically, um, which had been a, a real hallmark. Of, of classical civil rights strategy and want to also question whether seeking white allies and um, centering the work of interracial coalitions is necessarily going to be the most effective means of achieving social change and also of building leadership in the black community or should we actually have um, should we actually have more of an emphasis on um, on black leadership and and black membership in the organizations. So these two sides um, who are personified in the summer of 1966 by Martin Luther King on the one hand and Stokely Carmichael, the recently elected chair of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee or SNCC on the other, come together in the summer of 66 to lead a march that has been um, has been suspended for a moment by the uh, by the shooting of its original leader. This was a march that um, James Meredith, who was best known for being the first um, black student to enroll at the University of Mississippi, had decided to lead on his own across the whole state of Mississippi. He called it a march against fear. But on his second day walking, first or second day walking, he was ambushed by a shooter um, who shot him with birdshot on the side of the road. And so as he's recovering in a local hospital and he does, you know, eventually recover and come and rejoin the march. But um, the other, the civil rights organizations, the the organizations of the movement come together to decide how to carry on the march. And, um, and so King and Carmichael end up being sort of the two leaders who are, who are continuing this march. But very quickly, according to, um, according to King's um, account of the march in his book, Where Do We Go From Here, Chaos or Community, and also according to Carmichael, conflict breaks out over whether to sing We Shall Overcome. And um, and some members, King writes, of SNCC aren't – well. King, King just writes that there are some people on the march who say we don't, this is a new day, we don't sing those words anymore. We, we don't sing the verse black and white together anymore. Um, in fact, we shouldn't even sing we shall overcome at all. Um, and so 
in fact, nothing else comes up as like the theme song of that march. And instead, the characteristic sound of that march becomes the sound of people disagreeing about what to chant and people disagreeing about what to want. The major chant at civil rights marches at that point is, what do you want? Freedom. When do you want it? Now. But especially following um, the speech in Mississippi where uh, Stokely Carmichael introduces the slogan of black power, saying from now on, when they tell you what you, when they ask you what you want, from now on, when they ask you what you want, you know what to tell them. What do you want? And they go black power. Um, that actually becomes one of the sounds of the march itself. And King writes in his book that um, there were there were competitions on the march about who could chant their response the loudest. When you say, what do you want? Some people are yelling freedom. Some people are yelling black power. It makes the whole thing difficult to hear. And, um, and King held a meeting at which he said, we're just not going to do this chant anymore. So, um, and so journalist, a journalist who went along the route of the march with the marchers for a while writes about how much quiet there was and how much you heard, you know, just footsteps and murmuring and passing cars. And at a speech at the end of that march, um, King goes up this, at, toward the end of that summer and gives a speech in Chicago where he said, a, a, you know, huge speech at, at Soldier Field in Chicago. And he says to people, like, I understand you're all disappointed. I understand um, I understand that, that things aren't moving forward the way that you were hoping, um, but we need to stay focused. And I believe that there's no sound that better shows our resolve than the tramp, tramp, tramp of marching feet. So we've got, so your, your question was, what are the songs in the chapter? And my answer is that's, that's the wrong question because the sounds that aren't songs are the really important soundtrack of chapter three. Tell us about chapter four and the feminist voices. Chapter four tells the story of, well, it answers a question that I had about when does the backlash against second wave feminism begin and how does that development change the ideas and figures that feminism was operating under? So for one thing, I find out that the backlash, which, um, you know, if you just sort of asked random feminist person, they'd probably think it was sometime in the 80s. And I was surprised to see that it really got underway in 1977. This is the point at which Supreme Court cases um, begin to undermine the right to an abortion as established in Roe versus Wade. It's in 1977 that anti-gay and lesbian ballot initiatives start to become a thing. And and it's also right around this time that in the archive of radical feminist newsletters that I was researching in when I was writing the book, this is where you find um, people who are at the who are really at the core of the movement saying something has changed and there's some opposition and we need to figure out what we're doing about it. And one of the interesting things that I found was that the figure of women's voices which had been quite central to feminism since the late 60s, begins to lose its power and a focus on visuality and vision starts coming up instead. 
And this also overlaps, and not just coincidentally, but I know it overlaps both um, chronologically, um, but also causally with developments that are happening in the formation of Black feminist and women of color feminist thought and theory. Because the, um, a lot of the emphasis on visuality and sight is coming from, from, from Black feminists, including um, Audre Lorde, whose poem, After Images, is one of my main texts in the chapter, um, and also who has a lot to say about vision and being seen in some of the conference um, talks that she's giving right around that time. And, also, and that we can also find it in some important works from the early 1980s by the Black feminist theorist um, Hortense Spillers, who takes up vision really, really interestingly in a paper that she gives at the famous Barnard Conference on Sexuality in 1983. You end the book uh, with the AIDS crisis. What would you like to share with the audience about Chapter 5? Um. Uh, can, um, Deidre, can we pause for just a moment? Because I'm afraid I may have said the wrong year. All right, so I'm going to go back to right before I talked about Hortense Spillers, which was pretty much the last sentence before our pause. Okay. And this emphasis, and this emphasis on visuality also comes out in a um, in a really important talk that the Black feminist theorist Hortense Spillers gives at the famous Barnard Conference on Sexuality in 1982. All right. And you end the book with the AIDS crisis. Can you briefly tell the audience something you'd like to share with them about that? One of the really interesting things that the AIDS crisis does for my book is that it, um, it changes the conception of disappointment that I use in the book throughout throughout the previous chapters. I begin the book, right, with this idea of political disappointment as political desire that's continuing to last after the period of time when it seemed attainable has ended. Um, it's a common experience in, um, in politics in general. And I argue that it's an especially central experience of political life in the United States in the 20th century. Um, and that actually the failure of reconstruction, the, the act of like end and undermining of reconstruction after the Civil War kind of sets up in a certain way a template that repeats with variations over the course of the 20th century. And the reason that I argue for talking about it as disappointment as opposed to um, mourning or melancholia, which are common theoretical terms um, for thinking about um, loss and non-attainment in politics, is that I argue mourning and melancholia take too much for granted that the lost object is indelibly lost, that, there, that the thing that has failed to come about is gone the way that something dead is gone. Um, and so I, have, I seek throughout the book to distinguish disappointment from mourning as such. And yet we get to the AIDS crisis and death is unavoidable. Death is the currency of disappointment during the AIDS crisis. From the very beginning of the AIDS crisis when as 
gay men especially are, you know, dying of this mysterious disease in ever mounting numbers and the official silence on this issue is deafening and the um, the gay and lesbian community, as it was figured at the time, um, come to realize that the progress that they thought had been made since Stonewall was not thoroughgoing, was not complete, because if it had been, then the emergence of a mysterious disease claiming the lives of gay men would be a, a, an issue for public concern. And the fact that it is largely not for so many years really drives home the fact that um, that they've not succeeded in making their lives valued and their deaths grievable as they had thought they had. The dis- there's another disappointment, ha- and, and and so, but but it's a it's out of this disappointment, and this recognition that the advances of the post Stonewall gay liberation movement are limited that the AIDS activist movement emerges in the late eighties. But another wave of disappointment hits the movement a few years later when, in spite of the extremely visible and energetic and hopeful feeling activism that takes place in the couple of years um, following ACT UP's founding in 1987, despite all of that, a cure is not forthcoming and people who had been healthy when the movement began are dying. Um, And Douglas Crimp writes about this really movingly in an essay from the early 90s called Right on Girlfriend, um, in which he writes about the the struggles within the AIDS activist movement to to figure out what to do with and how to to exist in this moment of profound disappointment. Um, One of the, the, the real proximity of death of the reality of death to activists during the AIDS crisis forms the forms the the real proximity of death um, to activists during the AIDS crisis sets the stage for two of the cultural objects that I spend a lot of time with in this chapter. One of them is the documentary work of the black gay filmmaker Marlon Riggs, who passes away from AIDS when he's mostly but not all the way done making his final film, Black is Black Ain't. And the other object is a tape diary made by the, uh, by the gay artist David Wojnarowicz, um, in the early 1990s, when he's driving through the New Mexico desert and is listening to the radio and hears the song Fast Car by Tracy Chapman come on the radio. And, um, and he turns on his tape recorder and starts to talk alongside, alongside that song and in between the lines of that song. And I realize I said early 90s, but this tape is actually from February 1989 because Fast Car comes out in the late 80s, not the early 90s. So that's just one um, correction I wanted to make. But it's this beautiful tape that Wojnarowicz makes um, speaking and then letting um, letting the song come through and then speaking again and letting the song come through. Um, and I, I do a work in the chapter of making my own transcription of that tape that gives the two voices 
um, more or less equal space and dignity. And so what you get is um, what I write down is something like this, um, starting with Wojnarowicz's voice. But in these moments when a song comes on the radio, something that you like driving to, it's kind of hard. I remember we were driving to suddenly think of people like Peter or Keith or Paul, all of them having died from AIDS. And and I, I had a feeling that I belong. Just thinking about Peter, just knowing that he's never going to hear this song and he'll never be someone, be someone, be someone. Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us about the next project you'll be working on? I'm currently in the early phases of researching a book that asks the question of how media change influences social change. And the example that I'm looking at, the the case study that I'm interested in investigating, is the case study of the late 19th and early 20th century from about 1890 to 1935 or so, um, in a period in which the phonograph became a common consumer item, recording sound for playback on records and on the radio became a common experience. And also, enormous changes and conflicts were taking place around um, gender and sexuality and also reproduction and birth control. All of these things um, heavily, heavily inflected by uh, issues of race as well. So I'm looking at how the how the changes in sound reproduction technology affected the um, the contestations and the movements around um, gender, sexuality, race, reproduction, and also how the the intensity of those contestations affected the uses to which um, sound reproduction was put in that era. Well, we'll be looking forward to that project. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me.